0: Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. The Selma, Alabama of 1965 epitomized the scandal of black disenfranchisement. Of the 15,000 black people of voting age in the county, 335 had managed to register to vote. White people who numbered less than half the population made up 99% of the electorate. The idea of basing the voting rights movement in Selma appealed to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Southern Christian Leadership Conference, both because, against all odds, the local black leadership was strong, and because the sheriff, Jim Clark, was particularly brutal, he could be counted on to bully, abuse, and jail black people with impunity. It's not as strange as it sounds. They believed that if they could precipitate a confrontation, the news reports would seize the nation's attention. Let Clark show his true colors, said Dr. King. In a crisis, we must have a sense of drama. With any luck, We would be visibly abused without being maimed or killed, recalled Reverend Ralph Abernathy, a Southern Christian Leadership Conference leader. The line we walked was increasingly thin in these matters. They were right, but the price was very, very high. On February 18th, 1965, three members of the Jackson family, 26-year-old Vietnam War veteran and Baptist deacon Jimmy Lee, his mother Viola, and his grandfather Cager Lee, took part in a night march for voting rights and were attacked by Sheriff Clark's goons. Viola and Cager Lee were beaten with billy clubs. When Jimmy Lee intervened, he was shot and died a lingering death. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference proposed a 54-mile march from Selma to Montgomery to place responsibility for Jimmy Lee Jackson's death at Governor Wallace's door. On Sunday, March 7, 1965, about 600 people walking to abreast set out. After crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge, they were clubbed whipped, and tear-gassed. Time magazine described it as an orgy of police brutality. Again, by design, what became known as Bloody Sunday unfolded in the media the whole world was watching. One aide to President Johnson wrote, what the public felt was the deepest sense of outrage it had ever felt on the civil rights question. On March 8th, Dr. King sent a telegram to the clergy of America, which read in part, in the vicious maltreatment of defenseless citizens of Selma, we have witnessed an eruption of the disease of racism which seeks to destroy all America. No American is without responsibility. The people of Selma will struggle on for the soul of the nation, but it is fitting that all Americans help to bear the burden. I call therefore on clergy of all faiths to join me in Selma." Of the 500 ministers who answered the call, more than 100 were Unitarian Universalists. They were joined by an additional 400 of our lay people. 13 years ago, George Whitehouse and I joined some 450 of our colleagues in Alabama for a week of remembrance and recommitment. By then, those who had been in Selma as young men were grandfathers. One of them, our colleague Ray Manker, remembered working to serve dinner to the clergy who had gathered at Brown Chapel. The telephone rang in the church kitchen. An old woman picked it up. She listened for a moment and said in an exasperated voice, well, you'll have to get in line. And she slammed down the receiver. What was that all about, Ray Manker asked her. She brushed it off angrily. Oh, just another bomb threat. (laughs) On March 9, 1965, Dr. King led a symbolic march of the clergy to the Edmund Pettus Bridge. That night, Arlington Street's Jim Reeb, a Unitarian Universalist minister, a friend of Marion and Dan Hardenberg, left a restaurant with two colleagues, my friends Clark Olson and Orloff Miller. They were attacked by a carload of white men. Jim was hit in the head with a metal pipe or a baseball bat and later died. On March 11th, the board of the Unitarian Universalist Association, along with my minister and mentor, Unitarian Universalist Association President Dana Greeley, adjourned their meeting in Boston and flew to Selma. On the 15th, Dr. Greeley memorialized Jim Reeb there. Dr. King gave the eulogy. Thirty-seven years later, my colleague and friend, Dick Leonard, recalled that service. Everyone moved a bit in their seat when Dr. King asked rhetorically who killed Jim Reeb. He answered, a few ignorant men. He then asked what killed Jim Reeb and answered, an irrelevant church, an indifferent clergy, an irresponsible political system, a corrupt law enforcement hierarchy, and a timid federal government. He exhorted us, Dick says, to leave the ivory towers of learning and storm the bastions of segregation and see to it that the work Jim Reeb had started would be continued. It was Jim Reeb's death, not without irony, the death of a white northerner that finally sent the nation over its tipping point. That evening at long last in a 45 minute speech to Congress, President Johnson proposed the enactment of a voting rights bill, praising those African Americans whose actions and protests have awakened the conscience of this nation and urging the nation to overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. On March 21st, more than 3,000 people marched out of Selma, bound for Montgomery. Arthur Jealous, the minister of my child church, was in that number. At our clergy gathering in 2002, he recalled, I was 10th or so in the rank. A graying, small lady was on my left. To be in that procession was frightening and unnerving. I did neither weep nor tremble. Or so I thought. But my marching partner knew it was bad going for me. She reached over the short distance between us, took my hand, and said, we're going to be all right. Four days later, over 25,000 people joined the marchers as they entered the capital city to present a petition to Governor George Wallace Demanding the vote for all citizens of Alabama. Addressing the crowd, Dr. King said, we are on the move now and no wave of racism can stop us. At the end of the march, marchers signed each other's orange jackets. Dick Leonard asked a teenager who had marched with him for his signature. The boy didn't know how to write his name, but he said, I can write freedom. And so he did. 37 years later, Dick Leonard showed us that jacket and that electrifying signature, freedom. But standing at the airport on March 26th, he saw an ambulance speed past. Viola Greg Liuzzo, a Unitarian Universalist laywoman and mother of five, had been watching the 11 o'clock news in Detroit when the first terrible images from Bloody Sunday began to roll into her living room. Moved to help, she drove to Alabama to drive a shuttle for marchers. On a lonely stretch of road between Montgomery and Selma, Viola was shot to death by the Klan. Jimmy Lee Jackson, Jim Reeb, and Viola Liuzzo, the three martyrs of Selma, did not die in vain. Five months later, the Voting Rights Act became law, extending from Alabama to Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, the Carolinas, and Virginia. The crowning achievement of the Civil Rights Movement enfranchised black Southerners democratized the South and officially ended the era of Jim Crow. 50 years later, how does the call to Selma call to us today? On August 9th, in Ferguson, Missouri, Mike Brown, an 18-year-old black man, was fatally shot by a white police officer. Ashley Yates, a young activist tweeting as Brown Blaze, writes, Ferguson resonated with so many people because Ferguson really is everywhere. The economic assault via government schemes, police brutality, and culpable leadership are dynamics that play out across the globe. Today, it's been a long seven months, she writes, and Ferguson is still here. During what many are regarding as a historical time, it's imperative that we be intentional about our future. It's time to stop thanking Ferguson with words and start nourishing the movement that blossomed from the sacrifices of community members. We must conjure the fighting spirit displayed on West Fluorescent. Ashley Yates Ashley concludes, we'll know, hashtag, Black Lives Matter, when the site of our tragedies become true places of triumph. From Selma to Ferguson, what is our part in turning tragedy to triumph? Across the generations, Dr. King speaks to us today. In Drum Major Instinct, that sermon he preached in February of 1968, two months before his assassination, he told his congregation at Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church what he would like said about him at his funeral. And tucked into that sermon is Dr. King's invitation to serve. Everybody can be great, he said, because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics in physics to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, and a soul generated by love. And you can be that servant. From Selma to Ferguson, we are called to serve with a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. We are called to pay attention and to find our place, claim a place, make a place on that arc of the moral universe that bends toward justice. Beloved spiritual companions, let us reach over the short distance between us and join hands. Together, let us take up the work Gun in Selma, by Jimmy Lee Jackson, Jim Reeb, and Viola Gregliuzzo, and continue in Ferguson and beyond. With a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love, together, may we hear and heed the call to serve on the arc that bends justice. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ascboston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ascboston.org.